turn to Exodus chapter 33 and we're starting at verse 12. Exodus 33 verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me lead these people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said I know you by name And you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, Do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. Where my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiselled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, 
abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. O Lord, if I have found favour in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. God's character. How would you describe the character of God? If you could choose one word to describe his character, I wonder what that would be. Some of you in the crowd have um, a little card that I've given you. In a moment, I'd like to ask you to come to the front and bring that down to the front. And I'm going to ask you to take three uh, pens and four cards and hand that to four people in the crowd. What I'd like us to do is write down our one word that we would use to describe the character of God and at the end we'll collect them all, put them down at the back of the hall so that we can all um, broaden our vocabulary of uh, God's character and maybe um, learn about someone else's idea that we hadn't heard of or thought of before. So those people with a card that I handed out this morning, if you could come forward. You've actually got um, a little clue already on your card that will help us. Maybe if you'd like to, you could read that out, who God is. Lexi, do you have something? Just hold on to those and at the end of the service, if you could come and put your card back in here. We'll collate our ideas and we'll string them up somewhere so we can look at them as we begin our series on the character of God. Ian, if we could ask you to come to the front. Good morning, everybody. Nichols. Have you got your Bible with you? Psalm 86, 15, but don't read it yet. Or don't read it out yet. Dorothy Nichols. Psalm 103, verse 8. Jeff Kneebone. Got your Bible with you? Psalm 145, verse 8, but not yet. Peter Nelsonberger. Yay! Joel, chapter 2, verse 13. Oh, don't laugh at him, Monica, because you've got Jonah for two. And what's that? Oh, I might just add one now. 
Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're doing Hezekiah chapter 5. You are doing Joel chapter 2, verse 13. Yeah. How many people here know uh, Tim Keller? Or have heard of Tim Keller, who died just the other, or yesterday, I think, or maybe 36 hours ago? Um, Tim Keller was a a fascinating preacher, um, and uh, one of the things that he would often do was to think about biblical truth, but also the questions that people would ask in the surrounding cultures. He was in New York, so that's a bustling cosmopolitan culture full of um, successful people, homeless people, regular people, um, asking all sorts of different questions. And what I thought I would do today, and and not just in honour of Tim Keller, but he was on my mind, is to ask a few questions when we think about the character of God and who God actually is and what right we even have to say that we know anything about who God is. So for the next five weeks or so, we're going to be looking at different parts of the Old Testament, looking through how God is righteous, how God brings justice, how God is a healer, how God brings peace or shalom or harmony into the world. We're also going to look at, um, at God's holiness and what it means to live in the presence of a holy God and both the honour and frightening aspects of that. Because when we read the Old Testament, we're reading a book which is, in one sense, we should remember, is kind of unfamiliar and different to other books that we, that we read. A lot of us are familiar with uh, the New Testament, maybe even not realising that sometimes there are some things in there which uh, don't quite fit with the way that we think. Um, that's our problem. But the Old Testament is full of interesting things like that. And so when we talk about uh, God's character, we're going to be talking about the, the encouraging and the um, enlightening and the, um, the things that bring us yeah, encouragement and comfort. But we're also going to be looking at a few things which might go, whoa, that's, uh, that seems a bit um, off-putting. Let's have a think about it. It's good for us to, um, as we're looking at the Old Testament, think about these sorts of things. We find comfort and challenge, instruction, encouragement, as I say. It's good for us to stop and ask the questions, not just for ourselves, but the questions that people in our workplaces, that people that we meet day to day, might actually well ask of us if they find out that we are Christians. I hope that people find out that we are Christians. But as... um, Uh, Peter says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you, but also, we'll just add on the side, it's good to have an answer for some of the tricky questions that uh, that come up. I'm not going to actually give you uh, a series of pat answers for these things, but I do want us to, I guess, get the uh, the grey matter working, think about it during the week, and and pray maybe that you can have an opportunity to, uh, to share with people about who the God is that we worship. So when we say, uh, you know, who is God or what is God, uh, what does this mean? What, what is this English word? Is God God's name? Well, no. It's a, like I say, it's an English word. But what's it conveying to us? Um, what is a God or what is the God? Is, it, is a God a being of power? 
being a power thus worthy to worship or perhaps just wise to honour the powers that's more powerful than us. In Paul's language, looking around in his world, he says there are many gods and there are many lords. But for us, we believe there is one God, the Father, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. And he's reworking the Old Testament, uh, the Shema, where the Lord our God is, is one. Okay, so that's what we believe. We're confident in that. But we should also have, I think, sometimes a kind of uh, not an overconfidence about what we're able to say. We are reliant upon God's own revelation of himself because we think about different ways that people in our culture here in Margaret River might talk about what it means to know God and claim to know God in a way that sounds different to the way we talk about it. How can we know God? Speculating, um, maybe extending our ideas about the universe, the known universe, which is always being subject to revision, maybe expanding human characteristics, all the good ones, of course. You know, human beings are loving, so God is loving. Um, fair enough. But then maybe it's as the sceptics say that we are just creating a God in our own image rather than God having made us in God's image. Speculations. Or it might be that we, we have concepts, good philosophical concepts, and so we have, uh, you know, good old first cause, which you may have heard of before. Thomas Aquinas' five ways of thinking about how we can actually know that there is a God um, against the idea of a self-generating universe. Um, work our way back. There must have been something which kicked it all off. So maybe we can come up with an idea of God uh, from that. It doesn't really get you very far except to say, well, yeah, I think there's something behind all of this. So you can reason from those sorts of concepts. On the other hand, sometimes they comes back, concepts come back to bite us. The problem of evil. Uh, is Christian faith consistent? If there is a loving God, all-powerful God, why is there evil in the world? The big, probably the biggest question that we're facing. And the answer is... That's probably the, um, the hardest uh, question. I don't think the Bible gives you a, an answer to it as a philosophical question, but you do get clues and you do get a final resolution. Um, so I don't think you can beat that. Um, Blaise Pascal, who was a Christian philosopher back in the um, 17th century, I think it was, when he, when he died, it was found in his jacket, tucked away this little note. So he pulled out and read said, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, not the God of the philosophers. Now, he was a philosopher, but realised that philosophy itself is not going to really tell you a lot about, um, about God. But it's useful, so I'm not anti-philosophy, I study philosophy. Okay, how do we really know God? And surely it can only be if God reveals God's self. You might think about um, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, talking about how everyone is, can be aware that there is a God, his power and um, his divinity by the things that are made. The things that are made cannot explain themselves. In a sense, that's kind of a similar uh, pushback to uh, Aquinas' five ways. But how else has God revealed himself? Uh, back in the Enlightenment, I think it was um, 
It was Voltaire who said, why do I have to read the Bible or why do I have to listen to Jews or Christians or some other religion? Why can't God just speak directly to me and give me a special revelation rather than having to go through other people? Because the biblical revelation isn't kind of a universal spiritual experience or a vision or a set of data which gets implanted into each of us. Instead, it's a particular revelation at time, in time, in history, and compounding the scandal of that, it's connected with election. That is God's choice of a particular people for a mission in the world. And it's slow and it unfolds and it makes its way through history. And in and of itself, it raises questions about how God uh, can be known to those outside of that um, community over time. But that is how Christians and that is how Jews approach this whole question. God has spoken in a particular time and place and through history to reveal who he is. And the Old Testament is a fundamental part of that. That is where it begins. Now, you could say, look, Old Testament, fine. Uh, Jews, Christians are buying into that too, adding Jesus on top of that. Um, But we can't really know. Isn't that the culture in which we basically live is one of of scepticism and there is healthy scepticism and then there is scepticism that goes beyond that. You can be the judge in terms of thinking about how different people use their scepticism. But one of the things of the the safety, you might say, of of, uh, agnosticism is where we say, ah, well, we don't know, really, we don't know. Um, And then that moves on a little bit further to we don't know, we can't know which isn't the same thing. Um, Someone who doesn't know can find out. Someone who doesn't know can be told, can have something revealed to them. Just because someone doesn't know doesn't mean that they can't know. But if you think you can't know, then maybe that's a cover for saying, well, if we can't know, it doesn't really matter, does it? Has no real bearing uh, on this life. And if it has no real bearing on this life and we can't know, then we can defer consideration. We can defer, therefore, any decisions. Agnosticism can also be based on a kind of sentimental assumption, even Christian assumptions, that somehow or another it's all going to work out in the end. So I don't need to think about it now. God will understand, and it's really of no consequence Or maybe God will understand there will be consequences, but in the end, it'll all be right. Um, There's a number of church fathers who talk about um, that in that way as well. The thing is, we can't just be complacent in not knowing. And Christians, we have a message. We have a revelation of God. We have an understanding of who God is that comes out of the scriptures, that comes out of the Old Testament, and develops and is revealed fully in who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the full revelation of who God is. He's the full revelation of who humanity is to be. But all of that is rooted in a story, the story of Israel. And you don't really get to understand who Jesus is if you don't pay attention who the God is as revealed in the Old Testament and what God has revealed about himself. Sort of going on a little bit in our. This is kind of an intro to what we're what we're doing. Um, 
I'm going to be a lot more sort of positive and exegetical um, through the series, but I kind of want to set us up to think there is, a, um, I guess, an overconfidence sometimes in the way or of uh, explaining or thinking that we know what we believe and then kind of a bit of a shock when someone asks you, well, how do you really know that? How do you know that's true? I know you believe that. I believe it's in the Bible. Okay, well, how come the, how does the Bible know? You know, how does the Bible contain the truth? So we need to not just sort of have a, a reactive, the Bible says kind of response. It doesn't explain and explore and help people to understand what God has actually revealed to us. I believe this is God's revelation. I believe this is God's truth to us. I'm, I'm having a go at those around us maybe in a sense, but I'm coming for you in a minute. So, outside again, um, here's a revelation, but what about other revelation claims? Why believe the Bible's revelation claims? Why not believe Islam? Islam, uh, the inspiration of uh, revelation from the prophet uh, Muhammad, single person, single person versus the story of a nation, but, you know, you choose which one you want to go with. Um, Christians are wrong. The Old Testament has to be rewritten has to be corrected in the Quran. And then there are other spiritual uh, paths, metaphysical, religious claims, ideologies, experiences. I saw a book um, the other day, a very comforting title, that the universe has your back. <laughs> um, <laughs> which kind of seems absurd, but, you know, written by a um, rich American um, I'm pretty sure she feels like the universe has her back. But um, for the rest of us, that's not particularly helpful. Uh, the universe doesn't have our back all the time. Does the universe actually have a, um, uh, a plan for us? I don't know about that. Okay, here's where this starts to um, move slowly towards us. We live in a culture, we swim in it, we breathe it in. Um, it's part of who we are. And part of our task as Christians is actually to be reformed as we read through Scripture and our imaginations are changed, the way that we interact with the world, the way that we think through things, our worldview, all of these things begin to be reshaped. And we live in what we would call a liberal pluralistic society. Each of us has our own ideas, each of us has our own gods, each of us has our own projects that we work on. And so there's a kind of a sentimental, privatised aspect to our faith. So it's all about the individual. What do you think about God? What's your individual path? And don't interfere with anybody else's path. Don't correct people and don't push your religious agenda over someone else's religious or spiritual agenda because it's agnostic, sceptical. Um, let's just keep the peace by not treating any of this too seriously um, in public. You can be completely devoted in your private life, but don't get too serious about talking about this sort of thing in public. It's a no judgment culture, yeah? So the problem uh, in this culture is they think that having convictions about these sorts of things, about having conviction that there is a God, God can be known, God has revealed God's self to us, mm, bit too strong, uh, propensity for violence and that kind of talk, um, not very tolerant, 
And you can understand why people would say that because there are elements in history and even Christian history where people um, have taken uh, a cue from, um, from Scripture to, be, to become uh, violent. Misreading of Scripture, we would say. And then lastly, we could say with even a consumer capitalist society where religion and spirituality now, if I can be a bit cheeky, is a bit like a religious talent or reality show. So the farmer wants a wife and the seeker wants a God. Interview, check him out, you evaluate, you're in control, you decide which one you're going to have. All right, so... How do we know and how does the Old Testament actually help us here in uh, thinking about God, in revealing God and um, yeah, opening things up to us about the truths of God? The main thing that we have here, and we need to think about some of the difficulties maybe in approaching this, um, we're starting with all the hard stuff so we can get to the, the good stuff. But I want us to sort of think, walk slowly towards the Old Testament as we, as we um, yeah, think about it. The first thing is, how do we know? Well, none of us or few of us have had direct spiritual experiences of God that we could say for sure that was God, um, that go beyond um, the possibility of scepticism from other people. What we do have is we have a testimony. And it's a testimony that doesn't just come from one person who claims to be a prophet, a Joseph Smith or a Muhammad or whoever, but instead it's a testimony of the people of God. It's a testimony of a nation. It's a testimony of God at work revealing who God is to a whole community in public. Now, you can still be sceptical about it because you can be sceptical about everything, including the existence of other minds. Scepticism about the existence of Matthew's mind. Easy. Um, Scepticism is too easy in some respects. You have to justify your scepticism. We have a public story, a revelation in history that is public and comes through a nation. Now, stories can be challenged. The importance of, um, of this story is not just that people can try to give alternate accounts or different, um, you know, ask questions of, of logic and so forth, which are all fair enough. We have to also think about what is the evidence for this story as well, which is also what's important to thinking. Anything that you read in the Old Testament, what's the genre, what's the culture, how does this work? And then outside of the Bible itself, looking at questions of archaeology and history and things like that. Why are you talking about that? Well, it will become clear as we go through the series that actually when we think about who God is, has God actually acted, has God acted in a particular way? Well, uh, history, archaeology also have an important uh, voice into that question. Okay, we have challenges facing these stories as well. We're going to be talking about the holiness of God. We're going to talk about things like um, a poor fellow by the name of... uh, Uzziah, who put his hand out to steady the ark in a cart and was struck dead. Uh, We're going to talk about um, some of the commands that God gave to Israel to go and um, raise cities to the ground and, um, it appears, kill everyone in them. We're followers of Jesus, so even we have a bit of a, whoa, what's going on here? 
So we want to look at that. We want to understand how has God revealed who God is. This is actually explaining something about God. We want to understand it. But we don't want to just jump to being, oh, I'm offended. That's another part of the culture that we're in as well. Immediately, oh, I'm offended. Oh, no, I don't like that. So that can't be right. So again, the farmer wants a wife. The seeker wants their own God. God cannot be made in our image. The culture is unfamiliar to us, so we're going to look at it. We're going to try to explore what that means. We don't want to read the Old Testament like a problem. It's like, here's, here's another thing we're going to have to explain to people, or that, well, here's a way around it or something. We don't want to approach it that way. We want to approach it to understand it as actually this is a revelation of God. This is the word of God. But not um, in a um, sort of a blasé, I'm not interested in asking any of the hard questions. We're not going to read it as though it's deficient. We're not going to read it as though it's people's spiritual experiences that, well, they didn't really kind of get who God really was. That's not an adequate approach to scripture either. The Old Testament are what the New Testament calls the scriptures. It's when Jesus talks about the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. When Paul was talking about how the scriptures are written for us, the New Testament community, the Old Testament. So it's not something that we pick and choose from um, and, uh, yeah, have a, a smaller version. You know, the bits that we like, chop it down to about, um, you know, maybe 20 good pages of encouraging verses, the Bible or something. Um, so Jesus says, they speak of me. He says they're speaking of, the, of his heavenly father. It's not that there is... a a God, and then there's um, you know, a murky picture of God which we have to pick through to try to work out who the true God is in the Old Testament. We need to be a bit more patient and we need to spend time looking more closely at it. Okay, so God is being revealed in the Old Testament. God is speaking in the Old Testament. When we approach the Old Testament, though, and we're going to think about the character of God, there's four stages, I think, that we need to go through as we're reading it. It's all too easy now in our literate generation, each with their own Bible, to think, here's God's message written to me, God's love letter to me. It is not written to you. In the first instance, it was written, the Old Testament, to Israel, then. It's written then to them, then. But that's not all, of course. But that's where you start. And then you can ask, as Paul says, these weren't just written for Israel back then. These were written for us, this new movement, this new community called the church, which has come about. As First Corinthians says, these, these things were written for us. <clears throat> then you can say, it's not just written for the first century Christians, it's written for all of us here today. It's written for all of us Christians but again, it's in the first instance it's written to a community and to be read by a community for the community. So that's where you go next. But then, if you've done that, then it's okay to say, yeah, this is also written for me. It's also written for you and you and you and you and you. But if you think particularly if you think about God's mighty acts in history as a friend of mine, a whiny, whiny friend, 
it just takes it out of the video. Where are all the miracles today? Where's all the, you know, like the Exodus? Why isn't there anything happening like that today? And he was mainly complaining about his own life. But these are miracles and things that take place on the scale of the nation. And we're reading about individuals, often it's an individual who's a king. But of course, there's God's at work in the lives of ordinary people as well. But the thing is, start with, start with the community, start with the people of God, and then you work your way back to yourself. So we might say, the Lord is our healer. But is everybody healed? Does that mean that God is not the healer then? Because it doesn't always pan out for each individual. Is the Lord our just one, the righteous one? Well, not everyone gets justice every moment of their day, do they? Does that mean that we can't trust that God is the just one? All these questions do come back to have significant meaning for each of us as individuals. But if we want to understand who God is, we don't start with our own experience. We start with how God has revealed himself to a people and how he has worked through a people, how he has joined each, called each of us to join in uh, with that people and to participate in what God does for them and thus for you. All right, so as we now run out of time... I just want to say just a few things about this verse that we've started off here as well. This isn't an individual experience of Moses. This is Moses speaking on behalf of the people of Israel and what God is going to do for them, but he has a special place in all of this, of course, so he does get to have a bit of an individual conversation here as a representative and leader of Israel. I think it's interesting that it starts off that he says that uh, in verse 13 of uh, Exodus chapter 33, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember, this nation is your people. It's Moses, but also the community. But teach me your ways. God is not just there for the observation. He's not there just to let sceptics know, yep, I'm here, um, Go about your business. If you want to know God, if you want to encounter God, it means taking a bit of a risk, stepping in to what a relationship with God and his people might look like. It will mean understanding the ways of God. What does it mean to live in peace and as a peacemaker? What does it mean to actually celebrate and want justice in the world? What does it mean to actually want to honour God with one's whole life? What does it mean to actually put aside things that might seem fun, but actually don't help us and other people flourish? How do we put aside what the Bible calls sin? How do we learn to live in a godly way? Teach me your ways. If we want to know what God is like, we're not just on the receiving end, it's a participating as well. Jesus says something similar, of course, that if you continue in my word, then you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. John chapter 8. The Lord says here, my presence will go with you. We think about Jesus coming and living amongst us. That the word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt amongst us. 
thing about Matthew eleven twenty eight, where he says, come and follow after me and I will give you rest. The God that we see embodied in Jesus Christ, we also see here in this opening in Revelation of who's God's, what God's character actually is. We need God's presence, not just a kind of an idea of a God out there, not just transcendence, but eminence, not just far away and big, but close and in some way maybe intimate. But it's both. You can't just have an intimate God of your own, which is probably a God of your own making, says things that you like. Like, I think the Lord said to me, my goodness, that's exactly the kind of thing that you would say as well. What we find in the Old Testament is God that cannot be controlled. He's not one-sided. Uh, there's not just one dimension to who he is. When we say that God is love, it's absolutely true. But what is love? Is it just a sentimental feeling? Is it just how we choose to define love? Well, that's good while we have stories. We under things, understand things better through stories. So you want to know who God is? Moses very boldly says, <laughs> show me your glory. And the Lord, the Lord of God says, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. God's glory is God's goodness. You think that's very comforting. But also know that in seeing God's glory and God's goodness, if anyone sees my face, they will die. So when God talks about his goodness and God talks about his glory and his weight of presence, it's serious business. And it reveals something about us as well, that even though we think we're pretty good, in the presence of the Almighty, in the presence of the Creator, in the presence of the One who is being itself before there was a universe. Um, you can't just contain God in a small um, set of values or something like that. He says, I'll pass in front of you and I'll proclaim my name, Yahweh. So apologies to the Jehovah's Witnesses who met yesterday, not Jehovah, we don't even know actually how to pronounce God's name. Y-H-W-H. No vowels. So Yahweh is the best that we uh, come up with there. Meaning what? I am who I am or I am who I will be or I will be who I will be. Not sure on the tense there, but I'll tell you what. You can't make God into an idol. You can't make God... Um, part of your own program. You can't fit God into your life. Your life is in service and belongs to the one who he just is. That's kind of pretty scary, actually, thinking about what would it actually mean to see face-to-face -face being itself, personal being. You will die. But look, here's the good thing about who God is. Not just I will be who I will be, but this is how he elaborates his name. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. God's free decision. 
not about us, not about whether we deserve something or not. I'll have mercy on who I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on who I will have compassion. So Yahweh, I will be who I will be, chooses to say, fundamentally, this is who I am. He goes on, though, in uh, the next uh, section where Moses brings the new uh, tablets to say this. Uh, Moses has um, been put in a, uh, a cliff and a rock and God is going to go past. Comes out of the cloud. Okay, it's, a, it's an anthropomorphism, I suppose, because if God is ultimate and everything, to actually show himself in some kind of shape is not actually seeing. Here's the totality of God, a really bright, shiny guy. This is God revealing who, who he is in a way that Moses can even like take in. And it's overwhelming. And he has to hide in a rock. And he can't look directly at the Lord's face because he'll die. But you can see his back as he goes past. But what's important? The Lord proclaims his name. What is his character? Yahweh, the one who will be who he will be, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Whew, that's pretty astounding. Imagine if God was like an immediate reactor to everything that we did. Oh. I've said that thing about Matt Wallace before, about not having a brain. Bang, gone. Amazing love. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the descendants and their descendants for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations. Maintaining love to thousands and thousands of generations, but God is also a God of justice, which is what we're going to be looking at next week. Last thing, our Bible readers, this little section of scripture was so important to Israel that it's repeated time and time and again in the, in the Old Testament. Peter, what do you got there? Uh, I've got Psalm 86, verse 15. But thou, O Lord, art a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, what I'd also like to say is, if I'm like my wife, I'd rather definitely Jeff, what have you got there? Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, good to anger, and rich in love. Peter. Uh, Joel 2, 13. Break your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Dorothy. I didn't get a Messiah, get you read the whole song. 
The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And the same thing is in Nehemiah chapter 9, talking about their ancestors, recalling the story of the Exodus. You are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. This is the character of God in summary. This is who God has revealed himself to be. Israel latched onto it, repeated it, said it in multiple contexts, that this is the God that we believe in. Not just a distant, transcendent God, but one that's revealed who God is in this way. Dorothy, have you got uh, one, Psalm 103 still open there? Yes. Do you want to read from verse 6 to 12? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the world. He made known his ways to the Lord. His acts to the Lord. The Lord is This is the God that we worship. This is the God who has come to us in his son. This is the God who has blessed us with a future. This is the God who calls us to go out and to share the good news with people that we can all share in the glory of being in God's presence and not die, but to love, to live in his love and to love one another. Amen.